Welcome to the Cancer Youth Thrivers podcast. My name is Andrea Wilson-Woods, and I'm the CEO and co-founder of Cancer U. Join me each week as I interview cancer patients, caregivers, survivors, and providers about their cancer journeys. You're listening to Cancer Youth Thrivers, where real people share true stories. Robin McGee's award-winning book, The Cancer Olympics, describes her fight for medical justice and fair chemotherapy policy after serious medical negligence. For her patient advocacy work, Robin has been decorated by the Governor General of Canada. And Robin is so amazing. I've known her for a while, so I am not at all objective about her. And Robin, I appreciate you so much coming on today and sharing your story. Oh, I'm I'm thrilled, as you do. We are going to talk about your book in detail in a future Ask the Author section. So if you want to know more about Robin's book, be sure to check that out. But for today, we're going to ask Robin to take us back to the very beginning. So Robin, tell us how this whole thing started for you. Well, in uh, uh, when I was 46, this would be back in 2008, <laughs> I uh, I noticed uh, rectal bleeding, and so uh, I was just about to head out on a trip to Scotland with my mother, who at that point was ten years colon cancer free, and uh, and my sisters, and we were going to go to Scotland. And so the bleeding persisted over that whole trip. So um, just before I uh, left Canada for the trip, I booked an, uh, an appointment with my family doctor's office to be like the day I got back, so that I could right away. Uh, run this to earth. So I did that. I went into my family doctor's office, but unfortunately she was away and there was a locum there instead. And uh, when I explained that I was having daily rectal bleeding, that I my mother had had a history of colon cancer and that um, this was concerning to me, she said, oh, no, no, you took an antibiotic several months ago. It's an antibiotic reaction to that. Nothing to worry about. No referral. Nothing is required. Nothing will happen. Nothing. Months go by, a couple months go by, and the bleeding persists and continues through that. So make another appointment, this time with my regular family doctor, who had been my family doctor for 16 years, and who ought to have known that I was a very careful medical consumer, that I, you know, I worked very hard at keeping myself well. I worked out every day, I ate like a god. I, I did all these things, uh, really worked hard at that, and, and very rarely uh, bothered the doctor. She also said, oh, no, nothing to see here. There's nothing, antibiotic reaction, nothing there. I reminded her about my mother's colon cancer, and it said, look, this symptom's progressed. It's gone past just bleeding. I'm actually, tissue is actually coming out now, too. And she noted that in her EMR. Oh, yes, tissue coming out. But um, her, she said, oh, I'll refer you on to a specialist. Said, Great, I think things are taken care of then. But her referral was essentially one sentence, which was rectal bleeding, please assess. So she did not say anything about my background, my family history, mm. the symptom severity, the symptom duration, anything that would have informed a specialist. She left all that out. She was also closing her practice in a matter of weeks and because uh, she was going to um, 
leave family medicine to go off and be a hospitalist. So that was it. And then when, so after she left medicine, the symptom persisted, I found a new family doctor, went to him. He said, oh, oh, I just should mention that prior to seeing him, I arranged for myself to take a cancer screening test. So this was the fecal occult okay. blood test. So this is an old fashioned, well, from those days, the 2010, right. around in there. And so I took that test and of course it was positive. So I went in with a positive cancer screening test to a third family doctor saying, okay, now is will some, oh, I promise I'll follow up, promise. He forgot and nothing happened. Nothing happened of any kind. It took me two years almost uh, to uh, uh, finally see a, uh, a surgeon who also sort of belittled, there's nothing here to see here, um, didn't care about my family history because in her view, I only had one immediate family member with colorectal cancer. I needed two or more for her to take to have show concern. So it took, ultimately it took 22 months from the date I walked into a family um, doctor's office with symptoms of colorectal cancer to finally getting colonoscopy, which um, revealed the malignancy, which uh, by then we, it was coded stage three at the time, but in retrospect, we know now that it was actually stage four and it had been, had, it had gone to stage four from the point of the colonoscopy. It was, there was a scanning showed a, a distant lymph metastasis, which kind of shrank back to normal after radiation. So they kind of said, oh, well, maybe it was nothing, but it, it years later turned out to be the source of the recurrence. Uh, we know that from, from a surgery that saw that. That first doctor, the one that was closing the practice, your, the family doctor that actually knew you, writes down one sentence, but never actually referred you to Well, she No, she sent that off to a, um, she was a terrible thrower. And unfortunately, the specialist she referred to was a terrible catcher. She sent the referral off to a, um, a general surgeon. The general surgeon had, believe it or not, it was her practice for years to have her high school educated receptionist triage all her outpatient surgery consults. So she, what she had done is she had pasted on the secretary's desk the screening standards intended for asymptomatic individuals. Right at the top it says, if you have symptoms, go on to assessment. But she said, anytime any doctor or patient phones up about rectal bleeding, bleeding triage them with this. And of course it said people under 50 don't get scopes at all because that's the screening, that was the screening standard in 20, 2010. So believe it or not, that was the approach that this doctor took to people being referred to her for cancer symptoms was to let her secretary triage them. And she thought this was wonderful. Oh. Anyway, once I was diagnosed and I'd realized how all these doctors had seriously dropped this ball, um, I immediately got away from all of them and went to a safer surgeon. Um, but uh, what I um, then did was I submitted a complaint about uh, the negligence to the College of Physicians and Surgeons in Nova Scotia, which I learned was kind of my only path. I couldn't have a, uh, an in-person meeting with these doctors. There was no kind of restorative justice approach where we could all talk and learn. There was nothing like that. The only path allowed was a college complaint, which I had to do for each of them separately in a separate binder for all four and all that had to be sent off to the college. So long and short of it is that the college did discipline them all for, um, for egregious uh, negligence, cancer negligence, pointing out the flaws. There were foundational flaws in the practice of all of them. Of course, the doctor who forgets to follow up on a positive cancer screening test is 
outright negligence, a person who has a secretary triage or referrals, someone who writes one-line assessments and then quits medicine with nothing. And then the first one was not even anywhere near um, um, addressing the problem correctly. Do you think that they dismiss you because you were not the right age, you were in your mid-40s because you were a woman? Um, I mean, why do you I think, think they didn't take you seriously? I think it's not uncommon for women to have their symptoms, even a serious symptom like rectal bleeding, just written off. And I've, I unfortunately know hundreds of people under the age of 50 whose cancer symptoms were likewise um, dismissed because they were under 50. And some doctors have a very rigid view about that, uh, that, that screening cutoff line. But it, it, the analogy would be breast cancer screening starts at 50. Therefore, no woman under 50 can have breast cancer. So anybody who pre presents with breast lumps under 50, we'll just ignore her and tell her to wait till she's 50. It's yeah. craziness. We all, of course, know women who, uh, who uh, young women who have yeah. um, breast cancer. We, you do not investigate cases based on screening standards. You absolutely don't. So to take us back to the moment, it's been 22 months, you finally get a colonoscopy. What are we talking, 2010? And, and what were the next steps after that? The next step for uh, my kind of cancer uh, was rectal cancer. So that means it can be radiated. So they do, in my day, they did radiation and chemotherapy concurrently with the objective of shrinking the tumors because the pelvis is kind of small and they want it to be as small as possible when, before they excise it. So I had what, uh, so I did that. Then I moved on to a surgery. The surgery was what they call a total mesorectal excision, basically taking out the entire rectum and the whole um, envelope around it and assessment of lymph nodes uh, in that context. This is uh, crazy. The next step was supposed to be an adjuvant chemotherapy. Chemotherapy is supposed to be cleanup. In my province at the time, bizarrely, my province was the only place in all of North America that did not allow uh, the best practice standard for chemotherapy to be applied uh, in cases like mine. So now, today, no doctor, no oncologist would question for a second that you would give um, full Fox chemotherapy to someone who had a stage 3 or stage 4 erectile cancer. In my province, for some reason, they said, well, because you get radiation, we're not, we're not going to give you to Cadillac oncology. So we're only going to give you an oral pill, which now, in retrospect, is now known to be only suitable for, for stage one and, well, only for stage two cancers. So I was way, way undertreated for the presentation that I had, but it was the law of the province and couldn't be altered unless, <laughs> except that my community and I lobbied the uh, provincial government um, strenuously to um, expand our provincial formulary to include the best practice drug um, and pointing out that we were exception all over the world, you know, the states, the all other provinces, um, the all of Europe, all of Australia, New Zealand, Europe, all of those places had uh, had moved on uh, a strong infusional chemotherapy for for that stage. I have a question because here in the U.S., if that occurred, if the person had the finances to do it, they would just go to where they could get it. Do you know what I mean? They would just go. So, was that an option to go to another province? Not really. The uh, oncologist said, you need this chemotherapy right away. You can't afford any delay. 
in getting it right away because he knew, of course, it was an undertreatment, but his hands were tied. He said, you don't have time. You can't move to another province. You can't go live somewhere else. By the time you got into their system, that you've already delayed your treatment and that would be dangerous. So he basically said, you have to take what we offer you and f- meanwhile, we'll fight on, a, on the front to try and have it changed uh, in pro- the formulary to change um, in the province. My community and I were successful in lobbying the provincial government to allow the best practice chemo to come to Nova Scotia, unfortunately too late for me to receive it. So it took many months for that to kind of pass through our, our legislative assembly and, and uh, get sorted out by the various uh, ministries. When, uh, by the time that happened, I'd already c- completed the, uh, the lesser chemo, um, oral chemotherapy, Zalota. What I find fascinating, I just want to point out to people watching or listening is when we in the US think about a single payer national healthcare system, um, and this this is what struck me when I learned more about your story. We assume that it's the same, that it's all encompassing, that every state would be exactly the same. But what I find fascinating is it sounds like very much in Canada, there's the similar issue that we have in the U.S. where it's federal jurisdiction, federal rights versus state jurisdiction and state rights. What really struck me about your story, I was like, I had no idea that, that, that there were sort of a province rights, if you will, and that a province would be different than the rest of the well, system. Well, that was a shocker, deep shocker for me. What I can report is that Canada has moved on in its chemotherapy selection process. Now it's a national process. So what they, instead of having local yeah. experts all um, get uh, at each individual province, duplicating the decision-making, now there's a national group, a national group that evaluates the evidence and makes a recommendation, an expert recommendation. And then there's somebody who figures out how much that will cost and what, what the, um, the cost benefit. And there's a, so there's two sort of recommendations. Yes, you should do this. Yes, it'll save uh, money, or this is how much it will cost province. Now you can decide whether you implement that or not, but the experts have spoken and this is the best practice treatment. So, it's no longer by guess and by golly, by, by each uh, individual who the d- treatment du jour, the, this work, this meeting, this committee meeting du jour, it is done by a national process, which is uh, rational and, uh, and carefully worked out. So when I ultimately recurred, my cancer recurred, I once again, again, needed another drug that was uh, just outside the formulary, but it had passed through those two levels of national process. So I was able to get a special exemption to take it. And now, now that, now, of course, that's, it's a standard across all provinces. You're, you're amazing. You changed the law. I mean, you're amazing. You know, I am not responsible for them coming up with a great national system, but I think everybody was vastly relieved when that national system was developed because it took the pressure off individual governments. So would you take us back to, you get the chemo, not the ideal one. So not the, not the Cadillac, but maybe the Ford Escort of <laughs> the, chemotherapy. The, the, the Lada, yes. <laughs> right. Where are we time-wise and, and what happens next for you? Do you go into remission? Can you tell us more right. about that? So, so by way of sequence, chemo radiation first, surgery second, this sort of lightweight chemotherapy next. When they operate on you to, and they remove your entire rectum, it's a commonplace thing to give you a temporary ileostomy so that your system can kind of heal downstream of where they do all the cutting. So they want you to be kind of well healed and then they re- then they reverse the ostomy and then you, unfortunately, I, like the vast majority of people who have a surgery that 
extensive, end up with a condition that was very little understood in 2010, but is well understood now, or better understood, I should say. And that's a condition called low anterior resection syndrome, which is uh, just a really terrible bowel disorganization and torment. Um, and uh, it was really hard. It was a lot of uh, probably the most intense suffering of the whole period, apart from maybe recovery from a surgery, but really pain-wise and struggle-wise, quality of life-wise, that was a really difficult patch. So I had all that treatment. This uh, it, it more or less ended up after, after about a year uh, of treatment, I had come kind of to the end of what they were going to offer, and the rest of the time was supposed to be recovery. So um, I go into remission, I struggle with this LARS, this condition, but I'm, I eventually, in a year, a year from a year from the end of treatments, I'm able to return to work and resume a uh, life, travel, do those things, which were not possible, really, um, while recovering with this terrible Lars. Because really, you basically have to stay home all day because it's really hard to or negotiate your life away from toilets everywhere. After about two years of harsh Lars, you, I hit a kind of a plateau that was not great, but it was better. It would never be normal, it was never going to be okay, but it was going to be livable. So I lived that way and I remained in remission for about five, six years. So in 20, disturbingly, 2016, I, uh, I have a colonoscopy with a new surgeon, as my elder one had retired. She said, ah, you know, don't worry about your blood cancer marker, CEA marker rising. No, we don't even know what that means for people who are past five years. So it's nothing, it's nothing to see here. And uh, besides, you had a CT scan and it was perfectly clear that yet again, I experienced ter terrific medical negligence in that the radiologist who, um, who read that 2016 scan missed a not millimeter to centimeter tumor obvious in my pelvis, even non-radiologists go, well, what's that then? Like, what this, what's this big, huge thing? So big that people thought, is that an ovary? That, that's how big it was. And so, and yet he said, no, nothing to see here. So it was a false negative CT scan, which of course misled all the doctors around him so that people would say, oh no, we don't have to worry. I know you think you're recurring because your cancer blood markers looked like a, it looked like a right angle curve went up a hockey so, stick. It you know, just, went from 0.8 to 4.8 yeah. in a matter of months. And uh, that's, those aren't huge numbers, but it's not the number, it's the trajectory that matters. So right. uh, a high trajectory like that uh, predicts recurrence in 100% of cancer, colorectal cancer patients. I kept on appealing to the surgeon. I had saying something's wrong, something's wrong. No, nothing's wrong. I'm not worried. I'm not worried. I'm not going to see you. I won't speak to you. I won't answer your call. I'll send you another requisition for another colonoscopy. And we'd say, in fact, she sent it to my family doctor saying, we will get him in for a colonoscopy in the next two months. Family doctor writes back saying, she already had a colonoscopy with you, doctor, last month. She doesn't need another one. Oh, So that's how God. she didn't know we me. She couldn't. The moment how many times I phoned that office oh. or made, she didn't process that she didn't process it. She just didn't. In her defense, she was mis misled by this. Uh, recurrences after five years are uncommon. And also it's uncommon to have a false negative CT scan. Those two things happened, but it led her, misled her so much that she was absolutely not prepared to engage with me in any way, not even a phone call, not even anything like that. I ultimately got five requisitions for a colonoscopy from her office. Every time I called saying, I'm in trouble, something's wrong, please see me. Nope, nope, nope. And I had to um, appeal to a, a locum family doctor 
my old oncologist and got in the back door through oncology. So when I saw the oncologist and I showed him the numbers, he said, well, you are having a recurrence. There's, there's no numbers are like that without a recurrence, the 100% thing. So he arranged for me to have a PET CT, which of course revealed a malignancy like that. And unfortunately, in the six months in which I was lobbying, um, that uh, two centimeter tumor became a 10 centimeter tumor and it inveigled itself through out organs of the pelvis. What we learned ultimately has, had um, moved into a, an inoperable location deep in the pelvic sidewall, like too deep for any kind of treatment or any kind of rescue or surgery, whatever, not possible. I'm so mad, like I'm so mad for you. Uh, on your behalf. When we talk about the Canadian system versus the American system, it doesn't matter either way, either system, can you, the patient will be flummoxed by the yeah. physician or the specialist who goes, I, I can't, I'm not, I'm not doing it. Can't be done. Not doing it. Can't, it's, can't figure yeah, it out. It's, can't, you need a megaphone as a patient to say, there's something wrong. The top of your lungs, <laughs> because they keep going, no, there's nothing wrong. You're a woman. Just suck it up. I, I must say I was deeply distressed to hear about counterparts of mine, male counterparts who got in for scopes and uh, treatment, whatever like that, because they're male. Are you serious? And if you're a person of color or whatever, you, I mean, that, they're definitely uh, written off. And here it's our indigenous people written off. Oh, no, no, you're just, you know, you don't feel pain the, right, the way the rest of us do. So, no, no, nothing for you. So there's tons of evidence that people of African descent are more at risk of colon cancer than any other a subgroup. And it doesn't matter whether you're African-American, actual African, or you're in the Caribbean right. or wherever you are, you are at higher risk. And of course, your um, the screening standards for African uh, people, African descent people were, were five years ahead of every other uh, racial group, as it should have been. And now uh, your, your wisely, your uh, cancer society has recommended a lower screening to 45, which yes, means African yeah. people, should, African descent people should be at 40. Such a wealth uh, of knowledge. A, while I was in remission, I volunteered to serve on a provincial working group. And that was a working group that was uh, aimed at cancer standards oversight generally. Is this locally in like or state? No, in the province. So no, I, uh, got I was it. on the oversight committee and they were, there was going to be an expert working group on rectal cancer. And I said, may I join that? And they go, well, we really didn't want to have patients and their patients don't care. I said, you know, it's really amazing how interesting this becomes <laughs> when it's threatening your life. So, <laughs> so I said, no, I, I don't care how boring it is. I would like to be on that committee. Please don't make a decision for me on that basis. And so they did allow me to be the only patient rep on that committee. And so I, we, it was an extensive, extensive working group, went on for 40 meetings, extensive sessions, and, and there were multiple um, cancer experts there, radiologists and pathologists and oncologists and surgeons and others. And so they were uh, trying to kind of work out what is a, what ought to be a standard of care through for uh, rectal cancer throughout the province. Now, sadly, um, there was a change of government at the time, and this, the, all the work that was produced by this working group kind of got shelved by the incoming government. So as with all government enterprises, there's always something that, that uh, gets in the way. Being on that group gave me a whole bunch of awareness of several things, certainly about facts and knowledge about uh, treatment, or certainly the treatments available then. But it also revealed to me that how much um, we think cancer specialists talk to each other and know what each other does, but they don't. So they, they really don't. don't. The surgeons were equally 
astounded by what they were hearing from oncologists. Oncologists were uh, speaking to the pathologists. They go, you do that? Like, you think they all know their own system. They don't. If you are an unfortunate patient caught in one of those silos, you, you have to bust out to get to the second silo to get the information and even the help that you need. So I served in that group and that was of value and we, you know, we did our work there. I served on other groups too, ones around patient education. And so things that we knew as patients were completely overlooked by the clinicians because they don't know the patient journey. They don't, and because they're so siloed, they don't even know what dentists do. But my experience has been both as a patient and caregiver is the person who first sort of maybe solves the problem becomes the person in charge, whether it's the surgeon or the medical oncologist or the uh, interventional radiologist um, or the GI, you know, or the specialist for that particular organ. And I find that really strange because you might get an amazing doctor and that person is now leading the charge, but if he can't bring everyone else along and, and, and there's just no rhyme or reason to it. It's just kind of like, well, the doctor that solves the problem becomes the doctor, the lead. And those people are, especially in COVID times, um, quite burdened by demands. And so um, it's so easy um, for, to, for, for problems to be um, introduced by the reliance on just the, the largesse of one person. It shouldn't be that way. It should be a team-based approach where people actually do know and respect what other people are going to offer. That's what's very unsettling for patients who think there's a straightforward rational process for this. And it really isn't. There's a lot of by guess and by golly a lot of the times. And that's why we were trying to develop standards so that everybody would have a similar experience. But in any case, uh, so that was a very, very interesting and very rewarding, hugely time-consuming effort uh, on my part and their part to develop those, to work on those standards. I chose, uh, after the uh, college had weighed in uh, and disciplined the doctors in the, in my case, I also concurrently thought, you know, I, I'm going to do a malpractice action here. This, what happened was egregiously below the standard of, minimum standard of any care anywhere. In Canada, there isn't private malpractice insurance, what there is is an organization called the CMPA, the Canadian Medical Protective Association, and they vigorously um, defend doctors in malpractice actions. Also in Canada, malpractice law is different than in the States. There are caps on how much money you can recover in a malpractice action, or it's particularly around the pain and suffering component. In any case, so I launched the lawsuit against the four, and uh, it took seven years. And in seven years of litigation, the CMPA and their lawyers could not find one expert anywhere in the world to defend the, quali the, the care that I received because it was that bad. It was so out to lunch that they just said, there's no, there's no defending this. They couldn't find anyone. So uh, even they had to concede the standard of care. Now, of course, they dragged it on for seven years in the hopes that I would die in those seven years because dead people don't need the money, so they don't pay out as much when people survive um, or live a little longer than expected. Did it get settled? So eventually the uh, the CMPA came to our, my me and my lawyer and said, uh, will you settle with us because we, we have a trial date coming and we don't have any experts. We couldn't find any experts able to represent 
the doctors here around the standard of care. And, um, you know, in malpractice law, there's another thing around cancer to say, it didn't matter what doctors did or didn't do. You would be turn out just the same exactly no matter what. That two-year delay. When, I, when, when my cancer recurred, they realized that they were totally in a corner because the only reason I was stage four is because it took them that long to, to diagnose yeah. it. And so it would, I was not stage four when I first went to, to the, all those family doctors. Uh, I would, I, they, they may have been stage, stage two, but you know, the, the, the survival outcomes of stage two is vastly better than stage four. So since your recurrence. So what happened when I recurred, I went to go uh, see the surgeon, the pelvic surgeon, who was the expert, uh, one of the experts and leaders of the working group I'd worked on for years. The day, this is so sad, the very day that the recurrence is identified, I go see my oncologist. It's his last day of medicine after 40 years. You, you, the person I fought for full fucks with, is the last person I'll see before I stop practice forever. He said, look, I will get you a better, you can't stay with the person who keeps saying there's nothing to see here. Obviously you need to be with a real expert and the real expert is the man you know. And I was absolutely, if I'm, I said, if I'm losing, I lost my family doctor to cancer at that, ex, the good family doctor at that exact time. And so I had no one. So having one familiar face in treatment was, was important to me. And he, he said, you know, had I been able to get you when this, that was two centimeters, we would be having a different conversation than we're having today. Now what I'm going to have to do is this, this, this. So oophorectomy, hysterectomy, you're going to have to have a partial vaginectomy. So they had to cut the vagina on a diagonal. So it was weirdly, then weirdly shaped. Um, One of the ureters uh, was crushed by the cancer. So they had to sever the ureter and push the bladder up above the hysterectomy cuff in order for it to be close enough to the kidney. So that meant you, normal women have a bladder in front of their vagina. In my case, the bladder is essentially on top of the vagina. Anyway, what ended up happening though, is been being in there for two months instead of two weeks, the uh, vagina and bladder fused together and opened up and became essentially one big organ. So what that meant is kidneys make urine and it pours out of your vagina, it just pours out and you cannot be catheterized. There's no stopping it. There's no, there's, you only, you, you basically live in diapers. That's how you have to live. And this is a horrible, horrible mind bending complication that arose out of that debulking surgery. I actually went to Dallas, Texas and got a consult from a super sweetest doctor alive. Down there, expert covers the whole American Southwest. He said, you're over my head. I can't fix this either. And I thought, oh, I'm doomed. I'm totally doomed to live this way. And I got to tell you, it was uh, soul crushing to live that way. And as I was uh, referred to a a pelvic reconstruction specialist in Toronto, uh, who said, I don't think you can be fixed, but I will try. I will try. I will at least try. And it has to be done as an open surgery. There's, that's how it's going to have to be. And we're going to have to sep- separate those two organs and then put a, a, gra- a, inter- a momentum interposition graft in between them so this will never happen again. That's what has to be done. So 15 months living <laughs> when in diapers, I move, had to move, fly to Toronto, live in Toronto. I had to Airbnb and whatever, and, and uh, go and have the surgery. It was 13 hours surgery, 10 hours of which was just separating all the organs because they'd fused because of a, if you have pelvic radiation, organs 
respond to that by fusing together. But amazing gift of a surgeon, best, astounding, astounding surgical skill, managed to <laughs> separate everything, put the graft in there, sew me up, and completely cured me. Now I needed to have hyperbaric oxygen therapy, which is where you take oxygen every day for two hours every day. For um, I had to do that beforehand and after. So I ended up having to live in uh, Toronto for, for several months in order to have appropriate follow-up for surgery that extensive and to do the, the oxygen therapy. Uh, but the happy news was that it did work. It worked beautifully. I was uh, perfectly dry, fixed. It was uh, astonishing. Everybody, was just, <laughs> the whole world said this couldn't be done, and he, but he did do it and he could do it. So it did recur again in right a day. I learned of it the day the pandemic was declared in my province. So March 2020, okay. um, the world shuts down, as we all know, and yeah. unfortunately for me, so too was cancer care shut down, and everybody, no one knew what the other was doing. Half the cancer doctors had were out uh, on holiday. It was March. They were all our March break holiday. They went away to, to places and then had to quarantine when they got back, so there were no oncologists. So anyway, delay, 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 delay. It took me ultimately three months to access the chemotherapy I needed, and it took me five months to even speak to a surgeon by phone. And now now surgery is essentially out of the question for this in my view, because the only surgery that can be performed on me and it's still and it still would not be curative, would be what they call a total pelvic exceneration. So removal of the bladder, the vagina, the rectum, basically every pelvic organ is removed all at once in one big block. In palliative setting that kind of surgery results in death in about 14 months mostly from the complications of having us uh, that extensive a, an organ uh, removal and you know i i had a good friend who uh, who was an, uh, a gynecologist obstetric uh, expert who had seen many women have these before cervical cancer where but she in her opinion she said to me really the only people who survive that are young young women in their 20s and the only reason they do it is because they have newborn babies and they don't want to and they had they're not 59 like you are they they haven't had any chemo or radiation or any of these you know depleting treatments you know and even they could barely barely function afterwards and had horrendous they all lost their marriages I'm not doing that I I won't withstand it and it wouldn't cure me anyway it would be imagining a vegetable box with sort of rotten vegetables in it and if the, if the rot has kind of got into the cardboard it doesn't matter if you take out the vegetables it's still a rotten box so uh, that's kind of my thing I've got it's in the sidewall it can't be removed from there why remove everything else why go through that? So I just said, no, I'm, I'm a chemotherapy for life person now. I did respond well uh, to it and I, and I am stable at this time. So I've been given chemotherapy breaks uh, for upwards of three months to, uh, to help me um, sort of recover from the side effects and then start again and you cover, restart again, recover, start again. I want to ask you something and we're going to get into your book, you know, at a later date, but in your book, and just knowing you and seeing you on social media, something that really strikes me about you is that you still have a sense of humor. I still hear it. Like, like you're talking about these horrific things and, and you, I think you use that word horrific or something similar. And yet I still feel from you. One of the things I love about you is I still feel like you have a sense of humor that you're in, incredibly positive. Um, 
I just, so where does that come from? Or am I totally misjudging the whole situation? I can't, I won't say the humor is my number one coping response, but it is one of the ones that you, well, my husband has a great sense of humor. And so he, he often quips these one-liners that I think are just uh, hilarious when, uh, you remember, if you remember the queen in the years of uh, Diana and so on, she said, oh, we had an anus horribilis. The, my husband said, well, you're having an anus horribilis. So, you know, so uh, little jokes like that uh, lighten the awfulness. I come from kind of a long line of um, affable people. So uh, apparently my grandfather um, went, went through World War One and was mustard gassed in World War One. And when he came back from the war, he was one of the most affable people imaginable, even though the things he'd been through and the damage done to his body. Um, he was he died as a result of his uh, a long term consequence of, uh, of, the, of the injuries, the lung injuries he received. But he was he was so affable that he was invited to everybody's house on New Year's Day for this, you know, the Scots had that hog thing where they, the first person, a black, a black haired Scot has to cross your threshold the first day of every year, New Year. So I think that kind of covers the story. Except I, 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 um, so I, college complaint, punished those doctors. They were also all successfully sued all of them and through although it settled out of court because it had to because of my um, debulking surgery deadline and uh and yet that in canada is extremely uncommon extremely extremely uncommon for um for patients to prevail in a in a, in a malpractice action i'm so happy yeah no it was very vindicating so and satisfying happy. in fact uh, interestingly uh, as part of um, obama's presidency he um was very interested in cancer as his mother had recently died from it. So he, he had uh, deputized uh, people to address error and apology practice in an Amer a series of American hospitals. And um, of course, all the docs were afraid if we move to sort of um, restorative justice conversations with patients and apology practice with patients, we're going to get sued to death. The hospital saved $780 million in their first year doing this because the, the rule was you, if you harm a patient, you will, you have about a half an hour to apologize to them. Most injuries happening in hospital, most of them, all of them, uh, medication errors. So uh, if doctors would, oh, we gave you the wrong meds. We're so sorry. We've got the antidote right here. That's why you're throwing up. We're going to give it to you. We're so sorry. Those those people were not were not sued at all. People are sued when they find out in the records later. Deny and defend culture uh, actually invites. Um, uh, litigation. Uh, the other uh, piece of the Obama uh, legislation was that patients had to be part of, there had to be patients included on hospital councils, on quality councils, on various parts of hospital administration, so that patient voice would be heard around, you need to address this issue, or have you thought about that issue? Because as with all silos, pr providers and certainly um, hospital administrators have really very little understanding of what patients undergo. And until we speak to them and tell our stories, they don't know. Robin, what is one thing you wish you had known at the very beginning of your cancer journey, way, way back when? I had wished I had known how completely off base those doctors were. And part of the problem in my province, and I think this is a problem where I think this is a problem in the U.S. and Canada, is that patients do not have sufficient access to their own records. So had I seen that rectal bleeding, please assess, that's not an adequate referral letter. I'm going to phone and report. Or, or uh, 
I could have known. Wait a second, you 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 said you were going to follow up, but you forgot. I'm calling you again. I need to make it clear. I live and work in a small sort of semi-rural community. Two of the doctors, Doctor Two and Doctor Three, in my story, I worked with for years. I knew them as professionals for years. So it never dawned on me, not even once, that these people would give me short shrift. Because if it was the other way around, and they were coming to me for mental health help, I would have been all over that. I'm a psychologist in my day job. How could you do that? You know me personally. We're on a first name basis. And uh, in, uh, what I have done is I've become quite active in the patient safety movement. And uh, both, both in Canada and the States, there's a significant movement around ensuring that patient care is made safer because medical, people don't know this, and this, was, this might be a little different now in the COVID era, but it's the third leading cause of death in the United States is medical error. Those are the deaths. That's not the disability and people in wheelchairs and right. people who are hamstrung for life. They're, they're, they, uh, it's the deaths. So there's a person dies every 10 minutes of medical error in American hospitals. That's oh. the equivalent of three jumbo jets crashing every day. When you ask, if you ask, what do I think is a first step for improving patient safety, not just for cancer, but across the board, give patients portals and access to their live ongoing records. If the first step in patient empowerment, in my opinion, is that, that uh, uh, everyone should have access to their medical records. Now, not everybody wants that. For some people, it's all too much, and they just kind of want to be told what to do and go through it. That's fine. But at least they have the option, always. You have the option of tuning out your records. But for those of us for whom something's growing up and going wrong, you want to see the correspondence between that GI surgeon oh, yeah. and your, your surgeon if they're going, I don't know. What do you think? I don't know. What do you think? Well, I'm not going to do anything. Well, I'm not going to do anything either. Like, if you saw correspondence like that, you would know you were in real trouble, but you can't, you yeah. can't see it because you, it's, you're blocked from that. And that's not appropriate. You should be, if it, nothing about me without me, you should be privy to um, all things. In uh, Winnipeg, we have a, a civil rights museum, uh, which every Canadian and every person should go see. And it's the history of civil rights from, you know, ancient times to the present. Uh, it really focuses on areas that were horrific miscarriages of justice around unions and around. I like to believe that in 50 years time, patient safety rights is a civil right. It should be your civil right to see your own records and evaluate them for accuracy. And one day there'll be a museum will say, patients fought for this and now it's in place. Can we, can we, could we ever imagine it not being? So for example, you look at women voting, women voted, that was outrageous at one time. And now right. it's like, <laughs> of course, and we're appalled to know that people had to fight like cats and dogs to make that happen. Same with patient rights. You gotta fight like cats and dogs to make it happen. Probably my most proud moment uh, of my life was to get that uh, medal from the Governor General. It was, you know, it's a big thing. However, I recurred, you know, like, within months after that uh, medal. Every time I've had cancer, I've had spectacular delays, um, twice because of mismanagement by doctors and a third time by COVID. Are you ready on that note for the Thriver Rapid Fire questions? Yes. Beach, desert, or mountains? Mountains. Beach Boys, Beatles, Beatles or Beatles. Rolling Stones? Beatles, <laughs> Beatles to the third part. No doubt. Yes, no, no I am a no, yeah. Beatle maniac. Uh, what is one word that best describes you? Persistent. 
that was the word. Whenever I ask this question, I always like, what is the word that just popped into my mind? That's exactly the word that popped into my mind. For You're you. like 100%. Stephen Colbert yes. with these little questions. These are great. Before you die, what's the last song you want to hear? I, I've already chosen it. I would like to hear, uh, this is an obscure song. It's a Beatles. It's uh, um, Re uh, Return to Pepperland. Uh, from uh, it's an instrumental on the B side of uh, Yellow Submarine, so it's an instrumental. Okay. Doo, 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 but it's all done by an orchestra, <laughs> an orchestra, and it has a very cheer. It's the sound. Of, I don't know if you know the story of Yellow Submarine, but when the Beatles um, and the Blue Meanings are conquered, and the Beatles and Joy and Love come to be all through the land, um, there's this sound of. Uh, the cavalry, sort of this musical cavalry uh, arriving and then in incredible joy, but also a real note of sadness too. So what's the last meal you want to eat? Yeah. The last person or people oh, you want to see. And, and the last words you will speak. Wow. I want to say what Steve Jobs said. Oh, wow. Aside from Cancer U, what is one resource that you would recommend for cancer patients and caregivers? In my day, when I was first diagnosed, I used one of those helper uh, 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 helping website called Lots of Helping Hands. And this was a fantastic resource because it allowed, uh, it was sort of like a bridal registry of chores. <laughs> so when you have cancer and you need to drive your kid to this, but you can't because you're getting chemo, you you can put it out to your, uh, the, you select your community and you say, can anybody help with, it? like you put up, post the chore and people who can do it match themselves to the chore. So people who want to help you garden, and uh, you can have your needs met by community just quickly online using this uh, this platform. So now today, people can have private gig groups on Facebook. In my uh, Lots of Helping Hands is a private site so that if it's all push email too, it's all done by email, not you don't have to sign on to it. It's not like Karen Bridges where you have to sign on to a separate website. So what ends up happening is uh, you, uh, you're, the person whose emails you, it comes to you only. It doesn't go to the whole community the way it would in, face, in, in today's Facebook. But I would like to also add, now that it's 2021, uh, an excellent resource for any cancer patient. And one of the first things I recommend to people who are diagnosed with any cancer is on Facebook, there are private groups. Your boss won't see it. Your parents won't see it. It's private, sometimes secret groups dedicated to your subtype of cancer. There really is no substitute for talking to other survivors, both around the emotional side, but also even just physical coping. You use the solutions others have found. For my type of cancer, the group I uh, direct people to is, is called Colon Town. Yep. Colontown.org is the website you go to and uh, you can be admitted through, uh, you get vetted a little bit uh, and then you get, then you can join uh, that community and that community has sub-communities. So people with ostomies go, you can look at this. So people who um, are stage two can go here. People stage four go there. There's a, a niche for everyone and everyone's unique uh, difficulties. And so in my view, that is one of the most sub emotionally supportive things and also um, just straightforward information that you get as people post about the research they're reading and so on. If people want to get in touch with you, what's the best way? And also they currently have a blog called the can it's the cancer Olympics.com is so the cancer Olympics, all one word.com. I have a blog there. It's done 
uh, through the lens of great rock songs, famous rock songs, where the lyrics just really map onto the cancer experience. I have a post and then I each day, each time I introduce and here's a song that conveys sort of the emotional tenor of what I'm talking about up above. And a lot of it is from the 70s because of my vintage, but certainly that is the website. But you can get the book. It's all available in all the usual places by Amazon, by Indigo, by the money from the proceeds of the book go to cancer support programs um, through Canadian Cancer Society and um, Colorado Cancer Association here. And yeah, so, amazing. so, uh, but the, uh, the early story about the, um, the advocacy and the fight to bring about best practice in my province and my own survival <laughs> and seeking some medical justice through the college, all that's in the book. Okay, so we will put links to all the resources and the workshop um, on the uh, show notes page. And also, we will put a link to your Ask the Author episode, which at the time of this recording, we're actually doing that a little ways from now. But we will make sure sort of cross-check so you can hear all of Robin's story in its entirety. And on the Ask the Author, we kind of drill down really deep into her book, which is a fantastic book. On the cancerolympics.com, there is a contact in the menu. There's a contact. People click on that. You can, uh, you can email me um, directly or contact me directly. So we will put a link to that so people can contact you directly. Robin, thank you so much for coming on and sharing your story and just your fierceness. I mean, you are just fierce in the way that you advocate for your health and for others. No one wanted to ever walk this particular journey. This was not something I don't consider cancer a gift as a gift. I would never give it as a gift to anyone. I know, I, right? I, I bet a lot of people not, do, other than, yes. No, no, it is. It is not a gift. No, it is not. And it, and uh, while yes, it makes you aware of your mortality, it makes you aware of it. The once you are in that club, the club you never wanted to um, be in. For me, there's two parts to that, and one of them is your own survival, but how do you make the world a better place? Given that, well, in my case, uh, this this uh, treatment I'm having is palliative. It is uh, invariably terminal. Um, so I don't know when the terminus is, but it's going to come. And I just, when, I, when that day comes, I want to have done everything I can to prevent this kind of an outcome happening to other people, which is why I've become very active in the patient safety movement and an outspoken advocate for healthcare reform that leads to uh, better transparency, better accountability uh, in all systems, American, Canadian. You're fierce. You are. You're amazing. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Cancer Youth Thrivers podcast. If you like our podcast, give us a five-star rating and review and tell your friends about us. Subscribe on Apple Podcast, Amazon Music, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you're listening right now. If you want to share your cancer journey with the world and be a guest on our podcast, go to our website, cancer.university. That's cancer.university. And hit the contact button or click the contact link in the show notes. You've been listening to the Cancer Youth Thrivers podcast. Real people, true stories. True stories.